This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. I am Bill Huffman, and welcome to this week's bonus episode of Who Killed Amy Mihaljevic. On this bonus episode, I will speak with the chief of Bay Village Police, Mark Spetzel, to see where the case stands today. And after a year of heavy publicity that included this podcast, as well as the documentary that aired on the Investigation Discovery Channel, you, the listener, has left me with a few questions for Chief Spetzel, and I hope that this episode will help provide some clarity about where this case stands today. This conversation covers a lot, so please pay close attention. And if there's anything you hear that may help this case, the time to act is now. Last week, James Renner and I sat down with former FBI criminal profiler Jim Clemente and his co-host and former prosecutor Francie Hawks to discuss the Amy Mihaljevic case. So please check out their podcast, Best Case, Worst Case. And when the Amy episode drops, I will certainly let all the listeners know. In the meantime, I sat down with Chief Spetzel to give you, the listeners, an update on where this case stands. So let's jump right into my conversation with the Chief of Bay Village Police. So it's been about eight months since we first met, mm-hmm. and a lot's happened since then. We've, a lot of publicity. We've had a lot of publicity. We've had some anniversaries. Mm-hmm. What do you think the impact of participating in something like as public as the documentary and the podcast mm-hmm. that you participated in, you know, do you feel like that that provided an impact into the case? Did it help? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've always said that we're going to need the media's assistance to get out word to the public because the public, I still believe, is the key to solving this crime. And therefore, um, we need their input. And sometimes we have to remind them, you know, we have to kind of prompt them a little bit that this case is still out there unsolved and we need their help in, in solving it. So the podcast, uh, the documentary, uh, after each one, we received additional leads and tips. So it, it, it served its purpose. You know, we, we're never done until this case is solved. So we will always, you know, look for media to assist us in getting that word out. But you know, there's no doubt in the last year that uh, there's been a renewed interest in the public. Yeah, and I would agree that there's definitely been a renewed interest for sure. And I think with the, you know, with the new technology, and I mean, you look at back at 2018, and people will look back. I mean, people who look at cold cases, people like myself, or people who are investigators, will look back and say, okay, this was the watershed year where you know it kind of had the turning point where okay, we can take this information that we had from maybe 20 years ago, and now we can actually use it. 
Do you feel like, you know, since the case like April Tinsley was solved and uh, Christy Merrick and, you know, using these genealogical databases, do you feel like those are something that could help solve this case? Not today. However, in the future with increased technology and advancement in DNA, um, we have always tried to stay on the forefront of DNA information. Uh, and usually that's through the private sector. Public sector catches up with the private sector at some point. So we, we watch to see what's coming out as far as technology and advancements in DNA on the private sector. <clears throat> and we understand that, I mean, that increases exponentially, right? So technology that we existed five years ago, we thought was great, has expanded tremendously in just the last five years. So we're, we're wondering what the next five years, <clears throat> what the next five years is gonna bring us. So we try to keep that in mind as we do analysis of any DNA. And, and as you know, we, we have DNA in this case, but as I've always said, it's not the DNA that you're going to throw into the CODIS database, the national database of convicted offenders and get a hit back. So we can't do that. So we have other ways of, of working with that DNA but keeping in mind that our technology we have today does not allow us to definitely use that familiar DNA, which you've heard so much about in 2018. Right. Uh, we're, we're not to that point with our DNA yet. Okay, so the DNA that was used to solve those cases, they may have had a bigger or a larger piece of DNA. They, they had different DNA that was more effective to be utilized in that case, right? We do not have that, but we're hoping that someday the technology will advance to the point where with what we have, they'll be able to use that type of technology, but we're not quite there yet. Now, recently there was, you know, news stories about, and even on my podcast, it was mentioned that there were three hairs found. Is there anything that you can comment on that? No, I'd, re I'd prefer not to comment on the, the type of DNA that we have okay. or the nature of it, uh, uh, keeping in mind that it's someday I could be sitting across from the person who did this, and there's certain information that only us as investigators and the killer is going to know. And we like to keep that, you know, pretty solid, um, because it's not unusual for somebody to confess to a crime they didn't commit. Ironically, and um, we need to be able to to drill down into that information to determine if the person's actually involved. Well, in that in this case, that actually did happen, right? It happened several times. Yeah, yeah. And you know, and that basically what just creates a, you know, your fool's errand. Mm -hmm. Well, you think of the John Bonet Ramsey case and other cases that are high profile people have a need for whatever reason to insert themselves and garner attention. So it's not unusual and we understand that so we have to be prepared for that kind of thing and we are prepared for that. So like yeah the idea that somebody could step forward and say hey I did, I did this it. but you got to check these certain boxes in order to say correct yeah you're really the perpetrator. The correct. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Now in regards to you mentioned staying up to date with what the private sector is doing does the private sector reach out to you also? Is that something that they do or um, is that something that you just have to keep up with yourself? I wouldn't say they reach out to us. Uh, they're, they're more than willing to work with us if mm -hmm. we, we reach out, but we're not quite at the point to, to work directly with them. It's more of we like to see where the technology is going. And, and you know, of course, the public DNA experts, those at the labs, uh, they, they kind of keep up on this as well. So we get information from them about where the technology is headed and what the possibilities are in the future. But we also reach out to the private labs and say, where are you at? What are you doing? What, what's coming down the pike? Um, so we have some idea of where we might be going. Gotcha. Now, as far as 
one of the questions that uh, arose during the podcast um, was from you know from listeners, and that was you know why did it why in 2016 did you release the blanket and the curtain, and why didn't why did you wait the 27 years to do that? Well, it really wasn't a matter of waiting. What it was is a matter of resubmitting evidence that had already been analyzed using new technology, and that new technology identified things that we haven't hadn't seen before. So you have, again, we had a ton of evidence from Ashland County that was picked up. We resubmitted as much as we possibly could to have a new uh, look at it. Um, and again, the technology back then is not the technology of today. So in resubmitting it, they found things they had not discovered before. And that's why that came out. So it really wasn't a matter of withholding it. It was mm -hmm. a matter of identification. Yeah, and one of the questions that people are, you know, they question is because, well, how are they going to remember what they had 27 years ago? Mm -hmm. But if I think back to any cases or any old cases or open cases, you know, there isn't really necessarily a, uh, you know, website that's got all the pictures of everything that was found. That's so right. it's not like this was, I mean, yeah, it's all great to look back in hindsight mm -hmm. 2020, but in reality, you can't just throw all this stuff out there, especially in 1989. Well, you don't know what evidence means until you can connect it to something. Right. So a piece of paper you find on the road near a crime scene means absolutely nothing until you can connect it to something. If you were to throw out everything, it would just be a gumbled mess of stuff. And uh, until you can show some value of that evidence, it really isn't worthy to put out in the public because it means nothing at that point. And you had boxes upon boxes. Yeah, we, we collected hundreds of items just from the body area. So it's just it, it's just impossible for to one know what's what. Right. And then what should the public even know? Yeah, and it's not something you would do in any any investigation is just take all your evidence, take pictures, and throw out the public and say, "Hey, what do you guys think?" I mean, that would be a nightmare. Right. And and with armchair, you know, detectives these days sure. and I, and I think that's where a lot of that question mm -hmm. comes from, you know, the, you know, the armchair sleuths and hey, you know, to each his own. Um, but the question you know, I just had to ask a question sure. in regards to, you know, what the delay was. It wasn't really a delay. It was just uh, the technology wasn't there yet. That's and right. just like you said about, you know, a few minutes ago was the technology isn't there yet to use the DNA that you have. Right. You know, this case will be 30 years old this year, uh, her, her abduction in, in October. And there's very little information that we have not made public that is important. I mean, after 30 years, what, what are you going to retain? You know, um, Again, we retain certain things, knowing full well that if we're sitting across from the person who did this, we want information that only he and the investigators know. But other than that, most of the information on this case has been out in the public. There's really no reason after 30 years to hide anything. We want to solve it. However that happens, if a private citizen brings forth something that solves the case, great. Uh, they get credit for that. We don't care who gets credit. We just want to have it solved. So we're not in the job of, you know, parsing out information here and there just to kind of keep feeding. That's not what we're doing. Again, the, the, the curtain was put out because of new technology identified as thing. If there was something else that was valued, we would have put it out already, unless we developed it, you know, from here on out. Yeah, so a lot of the stories that you're seeing on the news and stuff right now is basically they're kind of just doing the anniversary stories mm -hmm. and follow-ups and sure. kind of covering the information that's already been out in the public for, for a decent amount of time. Correct. So in your opinion, there isn't really <clears throat> any new information that has come out that would be imperative to... For the public to, for to, the public know. to know. You know, we, we have received uh, probably well over 100 tips. Um, you know, and some of those tips are 
rehashed from old tips, some mm -hmm. are new information, um, you know, and, and tips have, some have more value than others, but we look at all of them. So we're going through all these tips. When did those tips come in? Uh, they started la They started in 18, you know, we got some after your podcast, we got some after the anniversary, we got some after the uh, documentary aired. So it, it, they come in spurts mm -hmm. as, as information goes out. And um, so we look at all, every tip that comes in, we're, we're looking at it. I think what the public needs to understand too, is that when a tip comes in, we don't go back to the tipster and say, here's what we found. You know, that's just not proper investigative protocol. So a lot of people feel as though, okay, I provided information, I never heard anything, so I don't think they did anything with it. Well, nothing can be further from the truth. The reality is we can't go back to, you can just imagine somebody would make something up just to find out what the investigation is doing if, if the reality was that investigators got back to everybody who submitted a tip. And I think most people understand that. They just want to see it solved. They're not looking... You know, there's a natural curiosity, obviously, uh -huh. but if somebody's giving information solely so they can find out where it goes, we're not in that business. We don't do that. No. Um, so the the idea here is, if you submit a tip, we get back to many people. Uh, some we don't, but we get back to them because we have follow up questions for them. Um, so if somebody calls in a tip and they don't hear back from us, they can rest assured that we followed up on it, but we didn't need any more additional information from them. Um, if it leads somewhere, eventually they may find out because we'll contact them again. But the bottom line is we don't get back to people with answers to what their tip meant. We just don't do that. And I think that that is an absolutely great thing to say because a lot of people are under that misconception mm -hmm. that once you phone a tip in and you don't hear anything, then they feel like, oh, it went into the ether mm -hmm. and, it's, and, and they don't care. Yeah. And like you just said, it's the furthest thing from the truth. Right. I understand that perspective, though. If I'm calling something in, how do I know that it was followed up on? You know, that's it. But that's what we do. We, we, we devote a lot of hours to this, these follow-up, and they take time. So even tips we got last year, we, we're not through all those tips. Yeah, and they take time. And if you did follow, I mean, let's say you did reach out to the people that did put in those tips, you'd have to have a whole new department for that. Just to get back to them. Just to get right, back to them. Right. And that's just... It's right. But sometimes things develop and we have further questions for the tipster and we'll get back with them and ask them those. And we always ask, you know, can we... Do you have contact information? So if we have further questions, we can contact you. And like I said, sometimes we do that. Now, one of the questions that arose that I just was inquiring and wondering about when I was putting together the podcast... It came up in one of the episodes, and whatever happened to Amy's backpack? Was that ever found? It was never found. No, uh, we know that she. Uh, we we know that it's missing. Okay. Because um, it's just always never one of those things that's yeah. referenced as those like oh these three items are right, the ones right. that we think that would keep as a trophy. The reason for that is you know while that description has been put out there, backpacks are more of a generic type of item that could be anywhere. I mean, I'm sure that the backpack she had was probably, there were probably thousands and thousands of them made, if not more. Whereas things like the earrings, the binder, uh, the boots were unique items that you're not going to find in everyday life. And so that if somebody comes across them, they're more readily identifiable. Right. Shoe size. Shoes. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's it just, her shoes were very specific. And again, like you're right, you know, they're a certain size, they're a certain make, they're a certain very unusual, the riding boots. Mm -hmm. This is not a common item you would find in most people's homes. A backpack, yeah. Uh, the windbreaker she was wearing, yeah. Uh, so the windbreaker was also not found. The, the windbreaker was also not found, right. That's so there are certain items they believe that she left to go to school with 
that were not at school, not at home, that were never discovered. Hmm. Interesting. Now, you know, it, it, it's odd that she left her bike, you know, the question, you know, the, she left her bike at the school on a, and the fact that it was a warm day, mm-hmm. you know, the, I, I still go back to that. The chances of it being a warm day on October 27th in Northeast Ohio aren't good. Mm-hmm. And it's like the perpetrator who set this up, I mean, I mean, what did he do? Did he tell, do you think he told, I mean, obviously you can't answer this, but, because you don't know, but, I mean, why did she leave her bike at the school and not ride her bike over to the plaza? That's the, hard to say, you know, obviously you could, you could project all, all you want. We know that she walked over to the plaza with two of her friends. Right. And I'm sure the expectation was that she was not going to be gone long, that she'd be coming back and she'd be riding her bike home. I'm sure that was the expectation. Yeah. And, and a lot, you know, my, another question that I had was, was she under, do you think she was under the impression that she was just going to be shopping at that plaza? We have no really way of knowing that. Um, I don't think, I don't think people in Bay consider that a mall. And the information we have is that she would be going to a mall to go shopping. So therefore, I, I, I don't think she probably thought that. Uh, but we have really no way of knowing for sure. Yeah, it's just one of those interesting things that, you know, it, you always wonder what, obviously, what was going through this guy's mind. And Absolutely. when I first met with you, you, sure. you know, you, that's the question. You know, what were you thinking that day? What, what was your plan? Exactly. Um, just recently, over the weekend, Angela Hicks, Mm-hmm. They arrested that guy, Samuel Legg. Um, he was 21, what was that, 20, he was 21 at the time? He would have been very young at the time. Yeah. yeah 21 years old. 21 years old. He wouldn't be looked into, would he? We, we look at everybody look that at has everybody. propensity to do this. Obviously, he would have been young. Yeah. Um, but you have somebody like that who is now being accused of multiple crimes, including rapes and murders. Obviously, it's somebody to look at. Sometimes it's very easy to rule these people out, and sometimes it's more difficult. Uh, but we look at anything like that where there's the possibility, be, uh, based upon their behavior, that it's something they could do. Are you familiar with the case? And I've not, I've never come across a case since Amy's where the phone was used as a ruse. Mm-hmm. But there was a case in Toronto in '86 or '87. Uh, the girl named Allison Perot, or uh, I think Allison Parrot or Allison okay. Perot. But she was lured by a guy who said, "Hey, I'm a track." I'm a photographer. I want to take some pictures for your track team. Will you meet me at this uh, location? Yeah. And your other teammates are going to be there. And then they found her body. Yeah. But they they ended up finding the killer. The killer for that one, yeah. For that one. But it was the first time that I ever, you know, this was 86. And it's like 89 was kind of like the, I mean, it was right before the technology started to get better mm-hmm. where you could track people's phone numbers and you could Correct. get caller ID and star 69 and all of right. that stuff that right. basically didn't exist mm-hmm. um i mean you guys obviously you know i know special agent tours and he mentioned this that you guys are always looking at other cases you know across the country have you had any other similar cases that you've seen where like the mo is even remotely similar where the guy used the phone as a there's there's other cases um that have some similarity there's nothing that is completely the same you know, there's no case out there that mirrors Amy's case. And um, so you always look for the connections. 
Uh, DMO obviously is extremely important. That often doesn't change. What will change is the technology for that MO. So what was a phone call in 89, you know, in the, in the, in the 90s, 2000s became a, you know, something on the internet. An instant message or right. something. And before the phones, it was a stranger, you know, walking down the street, you know. So there, but those kind of random things. But in this case, what's unique about this, and we don't find a whole lot, is the setup, the planning that went into it where he actually is contacting Amy on at least one, if not multiple occasions to set up a meet that ultimately is going to be the abduction. Most abductions of children, um, if they're not for familiar you know, purposes, ransom, are, are just random. Chance encounters. Um, Crimes of opportunity. Crimes of opportunity. That's not what we had here. She was targeted. You don't see that very often. So that is a key piece we look for. We also understand that we don't think this happened in a vacuum, that this is the only crime this individual ever committed. So you're looking to see, okay, what did they do before this? What did they do after this? Is there a chance they repeated the behavior? Was there crimes that led up to this that are like precursor crimes, whether it's a telephone harassment, burglaries, stalking, voyeurism, those type of things. So you're always looking for that type of behavior. And we look nationally because we don't know if this person came lived in Ohio prior to if he if he moved from Ohio after we don't we don't know those facts so that's why we throw it out nationally as well right and now the we talked earlier about the you know false leads and you know people calling in tips that may not be you know mm -hmm. just wanting to be a part of the story sure did you feel like all of the people that were contacted in North Olmstead were associated with this caller or is there some question whether or not that is I mean is it a, is it a hundred percent proven that they're no I don't think anything's a hundred percent proven okay um, but it was similar enough given the circumstances that we feel pretty comfortable that it could be related um, how many but, girls but we you know we looked at two very closely okay but again we we put out information um, Northeast Ohio wide to all the schools to send home to their parents to have this done and there were much more than two that were, you know, somewhat similar. But these kind of, when you boil it down and you look at the circumstances, were the closest to Amy's. But there were a lot of others as well. But the circumstances didn't line up as, as closely as those, as those did. Now, were any of those cases, like, close to being a victim? Or did they... Did it get any further than... Just calls in, you know, I, I came to school, a guy called and wanted to talk to me or, you know, asked if my parents were home. I said no and hung up. You know, it could be any number of, of different things like that. Keeping in mind that back in the 70s and 80s, those type of phone calls um, used by folks was not that uncommon, you know. Um, you mean making... Making phone calls. Like and, obscene phone calls. And they weren't necessarily all to lure kids either. Right. They're the obscene phone calls. I it's received like the one. texting, the random texting of today was the phone calls of the 80s and 70s. So Interesting. And so those things happened, uh, you know, and, and for whatever strange reasons people enjoyed making those kind of calls, they yeah. did. Yeah, I mean, prank calls. I mean, it prank was a whole thing. Prank calls or sexually oriented type of calls. Uh, those things happened. They did. So, but again, unique. You got to look at the unique circumstances of each call. Yeah, and the fa I mean, the fact that he actually had a conversation with right. her and set something into motion where he could literally have just been picked mm -hmm. up by you or mm -hmm. any other 
officer. Right. If they, I mean, if she would have come to you and said, hey, I'm supposed to meet this guy this afternoon. Yeah, like it would have been nice to meet there. Yeah, yeah. it would have been great. I mean, it, you know, it, yep. it's like, you know, if you and go again, back in the time. The technology back then uh, didn't allow us to track those kind of local phone calls that were made. So that obviously yeah, and they, that's another question everybody asks is like, well, I didn't. Why didn't they track the phone numbers? Well, the phone numbers were only tracked if they were long distance. Yeah. There was no computerized record for those kind of phone calls. Long distance, yes, which we did. Local, no. And the fact that there were no long distance phone calls that were suspicious, correct? Obviously led to right. the fact that this guy had it's to be a making call. a local call, correct? But that doesn't mean that he couldn't have come from somewhere out of and then made no a, idea. But yeah, the only thing I can tell you is you know that for somebody. The FBI um, behavioralists will tell you that for somebody to commit a crime like this, they have to have some familiarity with where the abduction takes place. They need to have some familiarity where, where the body is disposed of. And in this case, 50 miles apart, we're always looking for those connections, as we've, we've talked about before. Right. And, you know, the parents were obviously not suspected right off the bat. You know, they, they were, there was no suspicions of the parents. Mm. And, I mean, you're pretty much left with what the kids are told, told you. And for so for... 30 years almost, we've been basically, I mean, the story that we know is what was to, what she told her friends. Correct. Had she not talked to her friends, we'd know a lot less today than, than we currently do. So you're correct. We are relying on the information obtained from her friends mm -hmm. that she relayed to them. That's really what it comes down to. And then also the, the eyewitness uh, testimony of young fifth, sixth graders that saw her at the shopping center. And, but that's all you've got. So it makes it, um, that's why I say there's nothing 100% because um, eyewitness testimony is, is, is often seen generally as somewhat unreliable. It can be very reliable or it can be very unreliable. It depends on the individual, their perception and, you know, uh, time frames and all kinds of different things come into play. But when that's all you've got, for example, you know, we threw out the composite drawings based upon uh, her friends seeing Amy with this individual. Um, and then we've had tips where people say, well, the person I'm thinking of looks like that, but the jaw's a little different. Well, you can't rely on those type of very specifics in a composite. Composite drawing is more or less a general appearance of what somebody looked like. It's not going to be specific down to eyes and nose and glasses, all uniformly, yeah, this is the exact person. That's not the way a composite generally works. So that in and of itself, when it was put out days after the abduction, generated literally thousands of leads that had to be followed up on. And a majority of those leads were just look-alikes. Just look-alikes. You know, and a lot of those you could easily establish alibis. You know, the person was at the grocery store working that day, seen by 10 people. Okay, check that off. But you follow up on all those because you don't know. And so that involved a lot of investigative resources. And even though we had probably, um, you know, 40 to 60 agents working on the case immediately after it happened, that eats up a lot of resources. Oh, yeah. I mean... But when that's all you've got, you go with what the information is you have available. Yeah, and again, like, this wasn't something that you guys waited 24 hours. This was something that was Immediate. in the works. Boom, you know. Right. Margaret came to you guys, and it was, like, on yeah. the media or on the news that night. And right. the firestorm started that day, and it hasn't stopped really since. Exactly right. You mentioned earlier that you... You don't think this happened in a vacuum. You think that he may have committed this, committed cri other crimes? Other crimes. I wouldn't say exactly of, of this type, but I, I would imagine that for somebody to jump from a 
normal life, whatever you want to call it, to this type of crime would be a huge stretch. There's usually some behavior that is noticeable in somebody that would commit this type of crime. And, and often it manifests itself in criminal activity. So um, there's a possibility that after the crime, he didn't do anything. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Uh, but there's a really good chance that before the crime there was some behavior that people would recognize. Again, things like making phone calls, making prank calls, making um, you know sexual type crimes, uh, burglaries, voyeurism. Pushing the envelope like, each time. He's, he's testing to see what where where his point is. You know, and he keeps. And generally, what happens, they'll keep escalating. You know, this is not enough anymore. It's kind of like a drug. Mm-hmm. You know, you take yeah. a certain level of drug and it's fine, but then you become used to that and you need a little bit more. Right. This type of behavior is not, I mean, it's pretty analogous to that. And I, I think that you would see a, a slight progression. Does that mean that there, there's not a chance that, you know, he just is a one and done? Yeah, there's always the exceptions, right? And we have to consider that. But more often than not, there's a pattern to this. Yeah, so he could easily have just changed his MO and, you know, technology is going to catch me if I do it that way, so yeah. I'm going to move I'm on. use and... the Internet now, and I'm going to lure kids through the Internet. Or, uh, you know, the classic uh, uh, of a pedophile getting involved in a group that has access to kids, you know, that still happens. Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, church, you know, any num- uh, sports league, school, you name it, school, teachers, um, it's very common for those that have an interest in a certain group to get involved in those groups. I mean, it's, it's common. Um, so that could be in a play somewhere, too. You, you just you don't know. So you have to look at all avenues, and that's what makes this so frustrating for law enforcement is we've, we've looked at all these angles, you know, and you're just not finding that one thing that it's a home run. And you keep going back, and you circle back, and you look, and you look, mm-hmm. and you look, and you still can't find that one thing. You mentioned last time about the electronic database. Mm -hmm. Now, is that something that, like, has been, it's completed and you're able to use it? Yeah, we have an electronic database that basically um, has all our tips and leads in it, has all our follow-up investigations. We can search that database by names and and, and, in a lot of different ways. That database contains I wouldn't even want to guess. I don't have a way to quantify it. Thousands upon thousands of suspect names in it. Um, interviews, at least that number of interviews times whatever. You know, you think about one individual might be called and a suspect could have 50, 60 interviews associated with it. Another person who was a lookalike and we went to the store and found out he's working might have one or two. But when you're looking at thousands of people, you know, just imagine the amount of interviews and information that is that is connected to those individuals. So all that is in a in a database, not even a database. It's more of a. It's more. It's it's on a server mm-hmm. and it's searchable. Like it's to dedicated like right. dedicated right. to this case. Yep. You pump you punch put in a name and boom, and it, it could pull up, up information. All the information related to that individual. Right. That's 
And so you also mentioned in our interview over the summer or last spring, whenever it was, uh, about the money starting to run out. Mm -hmm. Are we reaching that point? We are. We are reaching that point. Uh, like I said, the state of Ohio has been very generous in giving us a couple of grants to continue this. Uh, I think that funding is, is almost up. Um, the city has also uh, assisted in additional money for the investigation, specifically to keep Phil Torsney working. Um, you know, we'll still work creatively to try to find ways to, to do that. Bottom line is we're a public entity. Uh, this is our job. So however we have to do it, we'll do it. But certainly when you work as, as diligently as we do, it, it requires a lot of resources. And at some point, if there's not money available, that kind of workload is going to have to be reduced because there's just not the manpower to do it. But we're going to continue. Uh, you know, I've dedicated myself to making sure this keeps going. Right. So we'll continue to do that. So Special Agent Torsen is still he is. assisting. He's still and assisting. Currently excellent. Is. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, now he was very. Um, he was hopeful with the with the science and and all that stuff. You know, with the, you know, speaking with the, you know, the labs that are currently producing these, mm -hmm. you know, results. Are you guys, you know, did they give you any sort of like? hey, this may be able to happen in the future in the next, like you said, I'm looking forward to what may happen in the next five years. Yeah. Is it something that you can, they say that, okay, it's not stuff you can put into CODIS and it's not necessarily something you can use for the familial DNA mm. or genealogy databases that they've been using, but we're working towards that process where this, where what you have will be one day I think the public labs are doing that again. The private labs usually um, perfect these systems before the public will, public labs will pick up on them because obviously we're dealing with a different level of certainty. So once something has been scientifically proven and evaluated and shown to work, then the my, my impression here is that the public labs, the BCI, the FBI labs, then will incorporate that type of technology into their system and start using it. But they're going to be behind the curve as far as where private sectors have been going. But they, again, they keep up with what the private labs are doing, and they know what is coming down the road, and they know the possibilities. And so they make, the, they make us aware of that. We're aware of it uh, also, which is why, you know, we're, we're not looking to, it, it, let's say I have, let's use a, a number, um, five. Five is my DNA number. Mm -hmm. And if I have to use three to, this is completely made up, by the way, just as a, a uh, Hypothetical. A, I, yeah, just a, to kind of uh, paint a picture. So if I have five DNA and I got to use three on this test to see if it matches something, I only have two left. Knowing technology is going to change, I think I'd rather keep three or four, knowing that technology improves to the point where I can use it like I anticipate it's going to have more value. So you have to kind of do that. You have to be careful on what you do with it. Yeah, because you only have so much DNA to work with and eventually Absolutely. it's going to... right run out you know, and that's no secret you know dna is not infinite uh we have what we have if we if we and, and some dna testing will use up the dna so you have to be careful that you don't use up all your dna evidence and in some of those other cases you know like the april tinsley case there was dna all over the place right i mean the guy was leaving dna purposely purposely you purposely. know we don't have that so that makes it a little more challenging for us now a touchy subject is that Sexually assaulted. Was she sexually assaulted? We don't know for sure, but we believe she probably was. Again, I go back to why does someone 
abduct a 10-year-old girl. Uh, and, and when you start thinking about the reasons for that, ransom, family, sexual, it, it usually comes down to sexual. Um, and when you look at the statistics, that's kind of where it leans. Uh, as awful as that is, that's probably the reality here. Um, unfortunately, due to the decomposition of her body, that will never be 100% determined. So we goes to, we, you know, we, based upon circumstantial evidence, we believe that's probably what happened here. That's unfortunate. As far as when her body was found, you know, the, the news at the time, you know, I, I was going through all the clips and a lot of the people kept saying, well, the body couldn't have been there. We were, were hunters, you know, we, we walked that area. We, we would have seen it. Is there any, I mean, from what I'll, everything that I've read is that the body would have um, been there the whole time, but is that, is there, is it? I don't think we can determine say that? for 100% certainty how long the body was there. The body was there for a while. Okay. Just based upon the decomposition that goes into the ground, mm -hmm. uh, we can determine the body was there for a while. Was the body placed there the day after? We have no way of knowing. Uh, we, we can't put a time frame to it. What you do is, you know, you talk to the entomologist, you talk to those folks, and they'll say the body was there for, for quite a while. It's also a very cold winter. Um, not a lot of precipitation. Um, the bottom line is the body had been in that field for a while. Um, She'd definitely been deceased for a while. And there's a possibility maybe the body was covered up, which is why nobody saw it. I, I, I understand the arguments on both sides. If I'm a, a bus driver or I drive that, how do I not see somebody laying 15 feet away off the roadway? Right. And all one day a jogger finds that. How does that happen? You know, and there's always a possibility her body was covered with something and either blew off, was removed, whatever Possibly the case may be. covered with a curtain with or a, curtain. a blanket. Correct. Um, so we don't know that for sure. Again, a lot of these are just theories. Mm -hmm. um, so you got to be careful when you when you have a theory that you don't try to get you don't try to force the facts into the theory. You got the theory stands on basically what you know and what's are possible. So that's not you know a theory can't necessarily be your all encompassing driving force. It, it's, it's just that it's a theory, and you work with that, but you don't eliminate other things because it's not fitting into your theory. Especially when facts come that contradict it, you have to be careful. Yeah, I think you find that a lot of times when you see cases where you know people are wrongfully convicted, where it's just they get a narrow focus, and it's just like, okay, well, it had to have been this guy because right. it was, and then yep. they just kind of discount everything mm -hmm. else that comes along the way. And I think a lot of folks that view this case from the outside are looking at bits and pieces of it. I forgot what the old story about the elephant, right? You know, but. Um, if you have the inside knowledge of the investigation and everything that's encompassing, you understand why some of this doesn't make sense that people propose. But our job is not to go out and, and, and argue with those who have limited knowledge of the case and, and you know, say you're wrong. It's not what we do. It's, that serves no purpose, quite frankly. What we want the public to understand is that there's, we need information. And I know I've used this probably 100 times in interviews, but I just picture this large puzzle We've got all the pieces. Maybe we're missing a couple. But until we get people to help us put the pieces in the right place, you know, and then grab those couple pieces that we don't know, you know, that's kind of where we're at. We have a lot of information. We probably have enough information, you know, if I was to throw out a number. We've probably got 90% of the information to solve this case. If we, we, if we had 99%, it doesn't do us any good until we get that 1%. 
You know, we got to be 100. percent The puzzle is not complete until it's all the done. pieces it's are in done. place. So you can't can't get that whole view of what it is until you start putting it all together. And sometimes people give us information that helps us to clarify that that picture, and and add a couple pieces. Um, so that's kind of the analogy I like to use because that's how I I picture this playing out. Finding a few more puzzle pieces to to finish it. Do you do any of the interviews yourself? I have not, since I've been chief in, since 2013, I probably have not done any interviews whatsoever. In the past I did, you know, okay. I, I, I was in charge of our detective bureau from 99 through 2013, so I did a, a few of those, obviously. Um, uh, prior to 1999, we had other folks that, that were part of the investigative team that did the majority of those. All that information, obviously, is documented and it's uh, well within our reach. Um, but uh, as far as my personal involvement, uh, it, it's hard because I want to be more involved, but I know I can't. My, right. my job description doesn't allow me or afford me the opportunity to give it that much time. But uh, I'm still involved in, in what's going on day to day, for sure. Now, is, is there anybody actively in, at the FBI working on the case? There is an agent assigned. Okay. Yep. And then uh, that agent assigned, if she needs additional resources, obviously can call on anybody including the lab, other, other resident agencies, uh, whatever she needs. So if we got a tip in another state, uh, she would coordinate with that resident agency in that state to send out a tip to have it investigated. So we use that resource quite a bit because we as Bay Village Police don't have the resources to fly around the country to follow up on tips and leads. It's not possible. So the FBI has been a tremendous partner with us in this. And that's, that's one of those saving graces in the sense that like they were involved pretty much right off the bat they were from yeah almost day one and that's because one well, one they a bunch of them lived here Correct. right in the right. city so mm -hmm. i mean this is a this is a city where people want to live and yeah it says something when somebody comes in from the outside in law enforcement and they say where where should we live we want a place that's safe that uh, we can raise our families and they get told bay village and that's really what happens so you had a lot of residents living you know a lot of FBI agents living in Bay Village. Now you said that you, uh, and I don't know if you were just s s saying this is just a you know number, but you mentioned you know uh, there might be somebody with fifty or sixty interviews associated with them. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like you've talked to the killer? It's it's really hard to know. You know we have done so much work on on individuals. Um, you know the circumstances of some tips are better than others. Some are more intriguing. Some get you closer to where you want to be, I believe, in, in the terms of the facts surrounding a suspect. But we've done so much work on some of these people that I'd be surprised if, because we've done so much, if the person was involved, just because we virtually, we vet out these people completely. So we everybody that's been out there in the, as far as the public may know, and then obviously yeah. you guys know other stuff. but. For the public to know, those individuals have been vetted, Com yes. seriously vetted. Completely. Yeah. And, and what, what, it, what it comes down to is to rule somebody out 100%, in my mind, you've got to have an ironclad alibi with multiple independent witnesses, with no skin in the game, saying, couldn't have possibly done it. We know when she was abducted, this person was here. You know, we got three people that can say he was here. I never, again, I, I don't, I'm not so narrow focused, like, okay, somebody said he was at work. Um, yeah, it can't be him then. 
you know, we, we like to be sure of ourselves. So that's why we keep that pool so wide. But the bottom line is when you do literally weeks and weeks and weeks worth of work on an individual, you have a pretty good feeling of where their involvement may or may not be. And uh, the bottom line is nobody's been arrested. Speaks for itself. Mm -hmm. In the documentary, mm -hmm. there were some interesting things that they talked about as far as some of the ways that they went about interrogating certain suspects. Mm -hmm. That was all true. Yeah, there was uh, there was uh, sodium pentothal, whatever you want to call that, used on one of the um, suspects back in the day. That was probably uh, ninety. Um, uh, hypnosis was used on, on witnesses and um, others that may have information to try to draw out additional facts. So things that you would think are, you know, movie related, obviously. Uh, polygraphs were used as, as needed, um, multiple interviews. I mean, a lot of different techniques were used. In fact, there was a database created back in 89 as tips started coming in. and. Um, kind of a new phenomenon back there where you get so much information is how do you take all that information and make sense of it? So they developed a database, which now you could call um, whatever the Microsoft database is, whatever that term is. Um, but back in the day, they created a, a, a database out of note cards where the tips used to come in. Mm -hmm. That technology and the procedures that were developed through the Maholovic case and some of the investigative methods actually evolved into the protocol that is still used today for, for missing abducted children. You know, as far as getting information outright, uh, having leads come in and making sense of all the leads as they come in and being able to analyze leads, just this multitude of, of information. You think of uh, the Boston bombing or things like that where you've got so much information flowing in uh, that people want to relate. How do you manage all that? In this case, was one of the first, certainly in this area, where that type of public input was vast and had to be organized. And, and some of those, like I said, some of those methods that were used are still used today. Do you, here's a question, do you polygraph, now have you used the polygraph on a lot of people? Or is that one of those things that it's just, you feel like, okay, it's time to bring in the polygraph. Yeah, it, it really depends on individual circumstances. We've certainly done our share of polygraph examinations. We don't obviously force anybody to do them. Um, often surprising maybe to the public is we often work with attorneys and on, on, with people. So if, uh, you know, Joe Smith is a suspect and, you know, I want him to take a polygraph and he's got an attorney, we'll work with the attorney. And, you know, we're very cooperative in that manner. You think about it this way. If Joe Smith didn't do it, we want to know that and move on. We don't want to waste a lot of time on Joe Smith if Joe Smith wasn't involved. So the quicker we can get to that point and, and the more investigative methods we can use to establish that, the better. And so most of the time, people are very cooperative, surprisingly. You know, it's not their fault necessarily somebody called him in as a suspect. We know we're out there pushing for that because we want to solve this. But if Joe Smith gets called in because he's a lookalike or Joe Smith gets called in because he knew the Maholovic family or or he, he went to the barn, or whatever the case may be, you know, he probably understands that. And most of the people we've talked to understand why we're contacting them. And they're more than willing to cooperate. And that says a lot about them in the first place. Yeah, and then you would think that anybody that is brought up in this case, one, they want to clear their name right away. Absolutely. I mean, if you're, okay, you're a lookalike. I'm a lookalike. I would, yeah. 
I have nothing to do with anything yeah, related right. to this type of right. crime. Mm -hmm. Give me a polygraph. Yeah, and your natural inclination is, yeah, I want to get this over with. I, I have nothing to do with this. What do you need to do? I'll do whatever you want me to do. That is what we get the vast majority of the time. Well, that's, I mean, at least, again, like you said, yeah. it rules those people out, and then you don't have to spend the time chasing down those leads. Do what you can, correct. Now, up in Michigan in the 80s, there was the Oakland County child killings. Mm -hmm. uh, and supposedly there was a ring of individuals. You don't think there was any sort of thing going on like that in this area? I did not, not at all. No. Okay. I think this is a, a lone individual involved with this crime. Now, does that mean that this lone individual, after the fact, didn't say something to somebody or maybe help them move a body or something? We'll never know that until we find out. But the person who planned this crime, abducted Amy Maholovic and killed her, I believe, was an individual, not a and, group. And kept it to himself. Yeah, for the most part. It's hard for people to keep secrets to themselves. We rely on that every day in law enforcement. Uh, so the, there could be people out there that were told something that leads them to believe this person might be involved. Is there somebody out there who has direct knowledge? There could very well be. I want that person to call me right now. In fact, we'll stop the interview here today if, uh, if they want to give me a call. Dave, uh, that's kind of what we're looking for. You know, we, we believe there's somebody out there that knows something we don't know yet. It would be very important for us to, to know. Now, this is just circling back to, like, let's see, was it 93 when Robert Russell released his book and he kind of mentioned Strunak as mm -hmm. a possible suspect? And that, when I met with Phil, uh, Special Agent Torsney, he kind of emphasized the fact that that didn't do a service or dis almost did a disservice to the Correct. investigation because of the fact that, well, one, he was only here for a few days mm -hmm. and he was just putting in his two cents. Right. But the public, in their mind, they hear one of the top FBI behavioralists say, we think it was, uh, I, think I think it, it, was, I think it yeah. was this guy. Yeah, right. And boom, you know, did tips start to slow down at that point? Well, I think what happens is the public then has a perception that that individual probably do it, they just can't prove it. And we've seen that in other instances with other names being thrown out there where, okay, this person looks good for whatever reason and this person said he did it, so you know, we as the public don't know any better, but this person's saying it, so it's gotta be true. Um, those things har harm an investigation. One person committed the crime, not the thousands and thousands of people we've had called in as suspects, obviously. So our job, it's as important for me to protect, well, I should say it this way, it's as important for me to find a killer as to protect the innocent people who are accused. You know, that's an important part of my job, is to not allow that information to get out there that could tarnish somebody for life and, and, and really affect them forever. If they had no involvement, they had no involvement. My job is not to react and, and start naming suspects or commenting on every person who did that. Again, other than to say that if somebody's called in a suspect and it's common knowledge in the public for whatever reason, you can rest assured we did a ton of work on that individual and spent a lot of time with them. Um, I think the public gets a piece of information, thinks it's great, doesn't have the, the knowledge and value of all the information we have, and just takes and runs with that. And, uh, you know, I understand that. But I think it's irresponsible to throw out names of individuals involved in a crime when you have no proof. It harms them, it harms the family, uh, and it does, it does a disservice to the investigation because uh, other people will say, well, we th I think law enforcement knows this person did it, they just can't prove it. 
That's not true. Right. As so, I sit here today, there's nobody that I say, I think this person did it. I'm just waiting to get, you know, more information to arrest him. We're not there. So it's Strunak was definitely not the guy. Oh, he, you know, obviously. The, all he the, had weird connections to the Amy Center. and. Yeah, there's always, but a lot of people had weird connections to the case for a variety of reasons. And that's why you look at them, right? But it doesn't mean they were involved in the homicide. And so while circumstances were unusual, that's what creates our interest. That's why we look at people. But you're right. Um, you know, the individual comes in. He, he analyzes the case. He writes a book. He just happened to be here for that little snippet of the investigation and, and feels that was him. Had he come at any other time, it would have been another person because we had people coming in and out of the, out of the case all the time. So that's just the nature of this investigation. And, and as a behavioralist, I mean, I guess, I mean, it was probably not the most responsible thing to, to put the name in the book, uh, especially for the investigation that's not closed. Correct. Uh, but the public, of course, is going to take that as almost truth because this guy's Sure, he's an expert. He's, he's, a, he's a law enforcement expert. How many times do you see him go on a different show and they talk about a suspect in a, a notorious crime in the country? Right. And then everybody's fixated. Well, that's got to be the guy. They're talking about him. Well, we've got our own notorious right. guy. <laughs> we, we, got, we got the guy who caught Wendy Bolger working on this case. Right. I mean. So it, it's just, I, I, I think that it's the nature of the public now to grasp onto these things and run with them and think that, okay, this must be it. You know, you, you amateur sleuths, armchair quarterbacking, whatever you want to call them. Monday morning quarterbacks, whatever you want to call them. whatever, yeah. And, and I get it. I understand that completely. Our job is to filter out that noise and stick with the facts. And um, when, when there's another drum beating out there, sometimes it's hard to ignore, but you really have to. You gotta stick and, and do with what you know. It does no good to, to, to respond to those things. You can't do anything about it other than to say, you know, and hope people trust that you actually are working on suspects and that if somebody was named, there's probably a really great chance that, you know, police probably looked at that. Yeah. and did their due diligence yeah and then some yeah exactly so that's so basically as far as the listeners anybody that's come up through this case they can be confident that yes. they have been thoroughly thoroughly investigated yep. and exactly right and you're still and you're not at that point where you can say i think it was this guy but we're oh, just yeah, waiting for no. that we're not there it's not no, there not at all do you feel like you're in a better place today than you were a year ago before we met? I think so. I think any time that you can work on a case and, you know, eliminate and, and, and clarify, it's a good thing. The only, the, our enemy has always been the passage of time. People die, people's memories fade, people's memories change. That is our greatest enemy, is just the passage of time. So while we narrow things down and we put things that maybe in a little bit clearer focus, the passage of time sometimes negates that, you know. Um, but again, ultimately, only history will prove whether uh, a tip coming in in the future will be the one to solve it and make the rest of that a moot point. Now, if you were talking to the listeners and, you know, those, they know information, what, what would you like to, them to know? Well, we want them to obviously call us. Um, we, we've had several tipsters call in and say, look, I, I feel weird calling because it's been 29 years. I've been sitting on this information and we're completely fine. That we understand the dynamics behind why people didn't call back in the day. We're still available to take that information. We still want to hear about it. 
we don't judge. We understand completely why people have not called in in the past and are willing to call in now. So just call us. You know, call the call the number. So there's no judgment on anybody who's Absolutely been sitting not. on information because no. they don't know if it's information that's pertinent or not. They, they have no idea. And you're not going to judge them based Absolutely on. Absolutely not. No, we understand the dynamics behind witnesses. And, and, and all the things that go into why you don't feel comfortable saying something. We've probably heard it all in the last 29 years. And, and we don't pass judgment on it. We understand it. Um, and, but we want them to come forward. And that's, and that's really what's going to be the thing that solves this I think case. So. I think so. I mean, it's not other than death at bed confession. Exactly right. And we're getting at that point where, like you said, yeah. the passage of time. Right. I mean, it's going to be 30 years coming up, and uh, you know, that makes it very hard. Yeah, and the individual's still out there. So mm -hmm. uh, I appreciate the time again. No problem. It's good to talk to you again. Good to talk to you. Thank you again for listening to this week's episode of Who Killed Amy Mihaljevic. If you enjoy this independently produced podcast, please help support independent journalism by clicking on the donate button on the bottom left on whokilledamymihaljevic.com. Any amount is appreciated, and it does help keep this podcast running. If you could also leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, that will also help support the show and continue to get Amy's story the coverage it deserves. I will be releasing a few more bonus episodes in the months to come. And stay tuned for updates on my newest podcast, Bomb City USA, Who Killed Danny Green. If you have any information regarding... Amy Mihaljevic, you can contact the Bay Village Police Department at 440-871-1234. If you have any new information, the FBI is also available at 1-800-CALL-FBI. They are also offering a reward of up to $25,000 for any new information regarding the death of Amy Renee Mihaljevic. So thank you again for listening and be safe. Hi, podcast listeners. I'm Carol Costello, a former CNN anchor and national correspondent. This January, I'm launching a podcast about one of the first cases I ever covered as a journalist. It's one that stuck with me all of these years, the one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. It's a true crime series about an amazing woman named Phyllis Cottle who defied torture and death and brought a fierce rage to the quest to find her attacker. Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage is a production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcast.com. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2. A new podcast from Crowd Network. 